Welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast, it is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have in your life. And what next steps will you take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 46. Now wait, before we go any further, make sure you are subscribing to the show. Many of you are, many of you have not yet. I would invite you to do it. You don't want to miss a single episode. And you are here at episode 46. You made a great decision because our guest is none other than Dr. Aaron Nahuvia. And the question this week is, what are the things that we love? Yes, the people we love, but more about what are the things that we love and how does that connect us to our passions, our identity, our status, and make it and make us who we are. And there is none better in the world to walk us through this topic than Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. He is one of the top researchers in the world on consumer behavior and ranked in the top 2% of all scientists in the world across all disciplines by an independent study from Stanford University. So I'm just going to try to keep up in this conversation. Now, his research has been featured in Time, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Glamour, and major publications all around the world. Dr. Huvi has appeared on public radio talk shows as well as Oprah Winfrey Show. And most recently, he is the author of a brand new book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Now, Professor Huvia studied philosophy at the University of Michigan before getting a PhD in marketing from the Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management. And along his path, he became a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. He became a full professor at the College of Business on University of Michigan's Dearborn campus and holds an appointment as a professor at the University of Michigan Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design. Aaron has presented research or consulted for Google, L'Oreal, Samsung, Maybelline, Procter & Gamble, Audi, General Motors, Microsoft, Ford. The list goes on and on. So his research has influenced so many companies and brands, some of the ones that you love and are using right now. Before I introduce you to Aaron, what brands do you love? Take a look around your house right now, whatever space you're in, maybe the car you're driving, <laughs> your favorite football team, soccer team. What are not just the things that you just tolerate, but who are the brands and what are the things that you are in love with? Now, this episode is perfect. You're going to learn so much, especially if you're in a leadership role in business or in marketing or in sales or running a company. But if you're not in business, this is about consumer behavior and what you buy and why you buy it. It's fascinating. And Aaron Ahuvia is the best in the world to take us through this. Let's not waste any more time. He's here. Let's go. Here, everyone, is Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. It is really good having you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So you heard a little bit of my introduction, Aaron, about your background. My goodness, what, a, what an interesting area of research that you, have, you are diving into and you've devoted a good chunk of your life to. And we're going to talk about that and your brand new book, which is fantastic. Before we get there, though, how did you land in this area of research? Of all the things that you could do, how did you land where you are right now? It's a little bit of a weird story. So uh, I was in, I got my PhD in marketing from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Business. Good school. And some of your listeners might be familiar with a well-known marketing professor, Professor Philip Kotler, who taught there. And I was taking his PhD seminar. He was explaining how everything was marketing, even dating was marketing. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because like, you're like marketing yourself to this other person in a sense. And I was single at the time <laughs> and thought that, well, that is so much more interesting than real marketing. Uh, so I asked if I could do my semester project on essentially dating as marketing. And he said, not only can you do it, 
But there's another professor, Mara Edelman, who's got a bunch of data on a dating service. So this was right about 1989, 1990. And the whole online dating thing was, the internet was brand new. The whole thing was just starting. Uh, so I got in touch with her and we ended up writing a lot together. We wrote five major papers together and we became for a time, the world's leading academic experts on dating services. Yeah, and it was really easy to become the world's greatest experts because we were the only experts. There was nobody else was looking at this yeah. at all. They all had much more common sense than we did. So uh, it was very fun. The news media loved us. I went on the Oprah Winfrey show, talked about singles ads. But then it was time for me to start working on my dissertation. And I knew that if I was the dating service guy, uh, the big business schools were not going to hire me. That just is too, too weird. Yeah. So I needed something else I could do that would make more sense for them. And it occurred to me that I'd spent a couple of years reading the scientific literature on love because I need to know about dating. So I'd done all this reading on love and dating, and I wanted to make use of that. So the light went up, up light clicked on, and I thought, well, I could do people who love products and brands ah. that already know the psychology of love literature. So I started doing that work. And lots of people had at that point talked, of course, about products that people felt strongly about, special possessions, things like that. But nobody had really taken the psychology of interpersonal love and applied it in a, a big way to people's feelings about objects and brands. So I was the first person to really research that area in depth. And that became the foundational work on brand love. And I've since published a lot of other stuff in that area and, I, and it's led to the recent book. Um, and it's been a really fun area to look at. So I look at other things as well in my career but that's the thing I'm probably best known for. Yeah, boy, you are. You are. You mentioned the book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And I got to explore that subtitle with you. Um, how, does, how does it make us who we are? This whole love of things and objects, how does that tie into self and identity and you know, really at a deep emotional level? Uh, educate me and us. Things or brands or products people own, most of them don't mean very much to people. Yeah. But a few of them do, right? There's a few that, that mean things to people and are important to us and we care about. And the difference there is that the things that we actually really care about, they go beyond simple practical benefits. They've got something else that makes us care about them. And one of, there's two big things that, that fill in this, this, you know, why do people care about these things? One is that they connect them to another person or people in some way. That's the part that connects us. And the other is that they help us form our identity. So the things we, you know, the objects in our life, they're not the main parts of our identity. Um, our social relationships with other people, our values, our religion, job, politics, um, all of that stuff is, is more important in shaping your sense of who you are, but products and brands do play a, a significant role there. 
And it's partly the things we love. It's also things that we hate. Sometimes people define their identity as like, I would never buy that thing, right? <laughs> I got a few so, of those. I got a few of those. So, it, but it gets emotional in both directions. Um, and certainly for, if you're a marketer and you want people to love your product, uh, you need to start out with a really high quality product, but you need to also go beyond that. And some of the ways that you go beyond that are helping people make a connection between the product and who they are and their sense of identity that, that they want to have. Yeah. So should I be looking at falling in love with a product um, as a bad thing, as something to maybe apologize for? Um, in, in other words, the, the um, objectifying uh, an object or coveting an object. I think you know where I'm going here, but I've been conventional wisdom is that's materialism. That's bad. That's something to avoid. And you say what? Materialism is interesting. There's a huge uh, amount of scientific studies on it. And in general, materialism is bad for people. It's associated with lower levels of happiness, uh, psychological problems, physical health problems. There's all kinds of things, bad things about materialism. Loving things, whether it's materialistic, it depends on what the thing is that you love. So if you love nature, that's not particularly materialistic. No. But if you love brands, there is a positive correlation that people who love brands tend to be materialistic. That is not necessarily always a bad thing. It depends on how they connect. So if you connect to a brand and you're sort of hoping that brand is gonna solve a lot of identity problems for you, it's probably not gonna be a good thing. If you look to brands to like make you more popular because they're popular brands and you wanna have them and then people will like you, what you find out is that they don't deliver, that buying that popular brand doesn't make you, you know, doesn't make you cooler and doesn't make you any more popular. There's a, another way that people connect and these people can love brands and they actually aren't that materialistic necessarily. What was really surprising, I think the big takeaway from the research we did is that materialists don't actually love a lot of the things they own. When materialists love brands, they love objects they don't yet own. It's all about the thing they don't own. And if they could get this thing, then they'd be happy. Whereas people who actually love things that they own because they use them and enjoy them, that's not all that materialistic in the sense it doesn't drive you to want more things. In fact, when people love their car, they keep it for longer. They're less likely to buy a new car. Yeah. When people are materialistic, they don't love their car. They love the car they don't have that they wish they had. Yes. That that they they think is going to solve their problems and and won't solve their problems. That might be the best best description of materialism that I've heard. That's really good insight. You know, I'm looking. First off, your book, uh, I it is a wonderful read. I I, I was reading it last night, and I, and one of the reviews of the book, um, it, this reader said this. I felt I could appreciate why I enjoy some of the things in my life so much, as well as why some things that I spend good money on leave me feeling just blah. So what do you think of that review? And how does that fit into brand love? That is wonderful. I, I loved reading that. 
And I really hope that other people have this experience. The book, if you are a business person, the book will be useful to you because it explains the underlying psychology of why people love all sorts of things, including products and brands. But I didn't write the book specifically for business people. I really, the, the main audience are curious people, people who read books on psychology um, and want to understand themselves a little better. Uh, if you read Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. or if you read Predictably Irrational or Freakonomics, because it explains people to themselves. It helps people get insight into their own behavior and also maybe their friend. Like, why is my friend so obsessed with whatever the heck it is that they're obsessed with? Um, it, it helps you understand both of that and hopefully helps people bring a little more love into their life in very literal ways. Yeah, I, I love that. Love that. And the, in reading your book, you know, I was thinking about, okay, what? And, and before I picked it up, I thought, okay, I know what this is about, uh, Aaron. This is about, you know, the things in my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking off to my left and my right. I got a lot, just a lot of things. But here's how you identified some of those, some of those, those things we love. God, uh, homes, cars, cell phone, clothing, sports, which I hadn't considered before. But certainly that, that is a brand. And maybe the biggest surprise for me, which warmed my heart to see, was pets. I, I never thought about the about about pets and how pets fit into this whole psychology of love. Will you tell me? Because I'm a dog lover and I loved learning about your dogs. But how do pets? How do dogs fit into this? Frame that up for us. The brain is hardwired. Your brain is built to separate people from things. It thinks about them in different ways, uh, and sometimes. It even goes so far as to literally think about people and things in physically different parts of the brain. Oh, so wow. if you are watching a machine and it's sweeping up a floor, you will process that in one part of your brain. If you look at a person sweeping the floor, you'll process that in a different part of your brain. Love is bound up in the thought processes and the parts of the brain that are reserved for people. So at a very literal level, um, your brain is not going to love something that isn't a person. Hmm. Yet, your brain loves all kinds of things. And that's because your brain often will treat something that isn't a person as if it is. And it makes it like an honorary person <laughs> and, and treats it like a, like a person for, for this purpose. So it's easier to love things that have human-like qualities animals and our pets kind of fall in this middle range. They're not literally people, but they're also not exactly things. Right. Uh, I included them in the book, even though they're not literally things, because I love my dogs and I wanted to talk about them. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm writing the book, so I, got, I decided to include them. Good for you. Uh, but part of the reason we love pets is that it's very easy for our brain to make them honorary people and therefore make them eligible for love. And we see this in the way we talk to them. I don't know about you, but I talk to my pets in ways that I know literally they do not understand, <laughs> but it's just so gratifying to talk to them that way. It is, it so, feels good. <laughs> yeah, it does. And so they clearly, and, and people also in a, in a study that I, I looked at, 
I found that people have two different main ways that they think about their dogs, at least. And one is some people see their dogs as sort of human friends, and other people see them as human children. And the way that they relate to their dogs is very different depending on whether their brain is sort of seeing the dog as an honorary human friend or an honorary child, <laughs> even down to things like whether they think the dog is able to cross the street on its own without getting hit by a car. You know, they, they project this. If they see their dog as a child, they're like, oh, that, that dog, it couldn't possibly do that by itself. It, it wouldn't yeah. be safe. Right. <laughs> so I had, a, uh, I had a golden doodle and he passed away about a year ago. Uh, and he was uh, about 80 pounds, a little bit overweight, but I loved him for it. But I, uh, I, the way I talk about him, Aaron, is he was, he, was my, he was a friend. He was an honorary family member. He was intelligent. He was, does that track? With what you're absolutely, saying. absolutely, and you know, our dogs are intelligent. I think we sometimes exaggerate their intelligence <laughs> because it helps us relate to them right. uh, a little bit more. But we definitely see them as honorary family members. And I will admit that uh, both of my dogs sometimes I see them as friends, but they're both small dogs, they're uh, King Charles Cavaliers, which are really, really sweet. Good breed. Sweet dogs. So I know, first off, let me draw a quick story for you, Aaron. So my wife and I, Michelle, we've been married for 33 years. And I remember our pastor, Pastor Affelt, put it through uh, premarital counseling, right? And just, it was great. But one of the things I remember he said to us is, he said, do you guys, re do you guys know the, the moment when you fell in love? And we thought, and we both couldn't, you know, we didn't have a date or a time. And he said, that's good, right? Because when you start falling into love, you shouldn't be able to identify the moment. It's just one of these things that's really tough to explain that over time, the affection grows and you begin to learn and love each other. And now I'm asking you on this back from interpersonal now to brands. How do I know? How do I know when I'm in love with a brand for a marketer, but also for a consumer? How, how do I know? I know your book talks about it. What do you think? Well, that's a fascinating story with a marriage counselor. There are the, the research on interpersonal romantic love says that there are two different trajectories. You know, there is the kind of love people say love at first sight. It doesn't literally mean at first sight, but you know, love very close to the beginning of the relationship when you you, you quickly fall in love with this person. And then there's the other pattern which is someone who sort of slowly grows on you. Yes. Maybe even someone who you've known for years and never thought of in a romantic way. Then it's something happens and you start to see them in a really different light. And both of those are really fine and can work. Um, I happened in, in, to fall, my, my wife and I, we've also been married 31 years. Wait. Uh, Good. And we were a love at first sight kind of thing. On our first date, I went home after my first date and told my roommate that I was going to marry her. Did and you? she went home after our first date and wrote in her diary that she was going to marry me. Look at you two. That's so, so good. Yeah, that was, that was really uh, astonishing. Um, but either pattern can work really well for people. When it comes to things, how do we know if we love them? Get more much more of the first pattern, excuse me, of the love at first sight kind of pattern. Mm. Oftentimes, 
things really click with someone. Uh, I have examples, for example, when people are buying a home. They'll shop for a lot of different, they'll look at a lot of different homes and then they'll walk up and they'll see one home and they'll go on the porch and already their heart is beating faster and they'll stick their head in the door and they're like, this is it, this is you it. know, yeah, right. this is the place. So you get that kind of a reaction uh, a lot that it leads to this, but it's not the only way. And uh, there are also many things we love that we did slowly grow to love. And that often happens where the growth occurred earlier in our lives. So if you think about the music that you love, you may think, oh, I just always loved that music. But the truth is you grew to love that music slowly. When you were four years old, you didn't love that music. You just didn't notice. So you know maybe you started loving that music when you were 16 years old. You just kind of your brain filters out. You don't remember the fact that, okay, then it took you 16 years to get to the point where you actually loved that music. I've been thinking more about the brands that I love. At least that's that's my phrase. One of the one of the and you have in your book a wonderful uh, quiz, love of things. Really, you know, how do I know where I where where do I stand? Is it is it not love? Is it sort of love? Is it is it true love? And what are some of those things that help create that, that emotional experience that can help foster that type of love? And maybe my, that question is off base, but do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. So with regard to the quiz, uh, I do in the book, I've got a copy of the quiz and I hope people read it and find it there. I also have a website called thethingsweelove.com. It's a, it's a number of things. So part of it is, again, if it's going to be like a product, people are super judgmental about products and brands. One of the differences between our love of products and brands and our love of people is that we're more judgmental about objects, which is wow. nice because I think it's appropriate to be judgmental about products more than about people. And this actually shows up in neuroscience work. So there's been a, quite a few studies where they've compared people who are thinking about a person that they love, like their romantic partner, or thinking about a child, their child that they love in a familial way, or thinking yeah. about a brand that they love. And one of the main differences is the portion of the brain where we make judgments is much more active when we're thinking about brands that we love really? than it is when we're thinking about our kids, for mm -hmm. example. And, and that's why if you have a brand that you love and it stops functioning very well, you'll hang on longer than if you didn't love that brand, but not nearly as long as you'd hang on to your kid if they had some sort of a problem. Right, right. right. So you think about this phrase that we hear, you know, does he love her or is he just using her? Oh, right? yeah. Or vice versa, does she love him or is she just using him? What that means if we say, you're just using the person. It means there's something that outside of the time you spend with them, maybe they're providing you with money, maybe they're gonna help you in your career, right? Uh, there's whatever it might be, you're getting some sort of extrinsic benefit and that's what's really motivating it. Interesting. Whereas if you love the person, it means that you really enjoy spending time with them. They're not a tool for something else, right? Just the time you spend with them is nice. 
Yeah. And that's also true for products. So I remember interviewing two women, one of whom really talked about loving her athletic shoes. And the other one talked about, well, she kind of likes, but doesn't love her athletic shoes. What was the difference? The woman who just liked her athletic shoes, she said, you know, I don't really enjoy exercising. <laughs> what I like, I like looking good. I like being in good shape. And so I like the results of exercising, but I don't like the exercising itself. Wow. And therefore, I don't love my shoes. I love looking good, right? Great. Whereas the other woman said, I like looking good, but I enjoy the exercise. Yeah. And so I enjoy using the shoes. And so I love the shoes themselves. So if your product or brand provides people with some sort of a big benefit, like health insurance, people might value that a lot, but nobody enjoys health insurance. No. And so I've never, when I ask people telling me about things that you love, nobody's ever said they love their health insurance. Right. That doesn't come up. But uh, music, uh, I love my mountain bike because it's super fun to use it. And I love the health benefits I get from using it. Interesting. So if I'm picking up what you're laying down here, now we get back to those examples then make you, those products that are part of you, yourself or your identity. Am I getting close? Yeah, you got it. And, and there's a connection there too, because if you enjoy using something, then often people feel that it is an authentic part of their identity. I love One it. of the things that, that impacts whether people feel something is part of their identity, part of it is just the image of it, right? I want to be seen, for example, as a sincere down-to-earth person. So maybe things that are casual and not too fancy will help me create that kind of identity versus I want to be seen as a very sophisticated person. So maybe things that are fancy, you know, and, and will seem sophisticated. Right. And will help me create a sophisticated identity. So part of it is the image, whether that fits or not with the identity you're trying to create. Hmm. But part of it also is, does it click with you? And what that means to people is, do they enjoy the process of using it? If they feel good about it and feel good when they're using it, and also if they're skilled at using it, then they feel like, oh, this is really me. Sometimes people would tell me, well, I actually enjoy listening to music but I don't think music is an authentic part of my identity because I'm not good at it. Hmm. I, this person I remember saying, she wasn't even good at listening to music, she felt, <laughs> because she couldn't remember the names of any bands. She couldn't remember songs. So she enjoyed the process of listening to it, which usually is enough. But yeah. in her mind, she felt, well, other people are so much more knowledgeable about this. I, I am a little self-conscious right now. And I'm thinking about the brands I love, what I'm wearing, what I'm, you know, how do brand, how does brand love fit into this whole discussion of economic capital and cultural capital? Yeah. So the idea here is that people care about social status, that we all care about social status. Even people who say they don't, either they're lying to themselves or they're lying to you because <laughs> uh, caring about what, what people think about you is fundamentally built into the human brain. Uh, there is even evidence now that there are parts, physical parts of the brain that specialize in caring about what other people think about you. Right? So it's, it's really built in there. 
Yeah. Uh, we all care. But we're trying to create different types of identities. So for some people, having money is an important positive part of their identity. And they see that as a legitimate sign of their success. They feel it means that I've, I've worked hard, I've been successful, and of course, it's an important thing. It shows, you know, it shows my success. And if you ask uh, the vague phrase like, oh, this person, are they, quote, successful? What that kind of translates to is how much money do they have? I mean, there's other ways of being successful, but in our, in our society, that's what it comes out to. You're right. You're so, right. So some, some people are very comfortable with that and, and value that. Other people see that as crass and materialistic, and they uh, tend to look, the identity they want to create is of someone who's smart and sophisticated, has good character. People who value money also value good character. And they see that as, as related to each other because they see your success on the job as reflecting good character. But this other kind of crowd that's sort of more anti-materialistic, they tend to be more intellectually oriented. And, and they often are people who've chosen jobs where you don't get paid as much in that job. Like maybe they become a teacher, right? Yeah. You don't get paid as much, but you get to use your intelligence and you get to connect with other people and you have sort of other rewards other than the money. So they still, those people still want social status. They want other people to think well of them, but they don't base that so much on money. They base it on, am I successful in my career in other ways? Do I have good social relationships? Am I cool? Am I hip? comes up. Am I creative? Am I smart? Um, so that kind of a, a, of a personality, we'll call that cultural capital. Mm -hmm. And most people want both. Yeah, most people want others to respect us because we're successful and we've been financially successful. And we'd like other people to respect us because they think we're smart and creative yeah. and have good, you know, good taste and all we're that all kind of thing. But yeah. people put, people focus more on one than the other. And the kinds of things you love reflect which of these is your go-to, your sort of first priority in terms of status. So for example, people who uh, see financial success as important, they tend to love things that are expensive and they tend to love things that are conventionally popular. So okay. saying like, this is the number one selling whatever, that's a big recommendation <laughs> to them. Right. Whereas people who put their, their sense of identity and their status around being smart and creative, those people, they tend to love things that aren't that expensive because they think, oh, I'm smart. I can get something that costs less and is better because I'm smarter, right? So inexpensive but high quality things is, is what what gets them similarly things that show good aesthetic taste so being really knowledgeable about art and music and food and wine is is another big source of status uh and self-esteem uh for these people so and they tend to think that if you buy things that are conventionally popular that's too conformist so if you buy like, if someone says, oh, you should drink this beer, it's the number one selling beer. 
the first thing that they'll go through their head is, wow, that sounds mediocre. <laughs> I don't want the number one selling beer. That sounds like it'll be very blah. Right. It's mass want, marketed. Right. Right. That's right. I want something that only the real connoisseurs know about. There we go. And that's how they get their status. You know, I was listening to a podcast interview with you. Um, I believe it was with Second City. Great podcast interview. But in that discussion, you talked about how this whole discussion of social status and, you know, cultural capital fits into, uh, you know, stereotypical you know, uh, left and right. How does status fit into either politics or religion or what do you have for us there? I think it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. So if you think about the vast majority of Americans, uh, we, that's just sort of what it means to be the vast majority. You're not elites. Elites are not the majority. Yeah. So there are two different kinds of elites. There are people who are elite because they've got a whole ton of money. So yes. those are like the economic elites. And then there's also the cultural capital elites. These are the people who, they are elites, but they're not because they have the most money. They have the highest level of education. They have the best, in their own view at least, the best taste and judgment. Um, they're smart and they're the creative people, right? So the people, the more education you have, this is just a sort of statistical fact. The more education you have, the more socially liberal you tend to be. Interesting. And the more money you have, the more economically conservative you tend to be. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense, especially the, the, the second one, right? So if you've got a lot of money, economic conservative means you want low taxes on the rich. Well, you got right. a lot of money, of course you want low taxes <laughs> on the rich, right? And you yeah. want low uh, regulation for business because you might own a business and you yeah. don't want the government mucking with what you're trying to do. So that makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit more surprising that there's this correlation that the more education you have, the more of a cultural elite you are, the more liberal you are. But we see that very clearly if you look across uh, demographic surveys of Americans. And so you've got the main body of the population and they're kind of looking at these two groups and they see the people with more money and they feel like, well, these people, they're elites, but they're like me. Their tastes are like my tastes. Their opinions are like my opinions on most people, on most things. And I would like to be like them. I could be the same basic person I am now, but with more money. Yeah. What's not to like about that? Right. So there's up. a sense of kinship with these more economic elites. Whereas when they when the mainstream looks at the people who are culturally elite, very, very high education people, they say, you know, these people, they're not like me. They have different values. They, they, they enjoy different foods that I enjoy. They listen to different music that I enjoy. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily, if I were to become like them, I'd be a different person. Yeah. Well, if you've got two types of populist politicians, uh, so Donald Trump is a you know conservative populist uh, politician, and uh, Sanders is a liberal uh, populist politician. Yeah. Populism, at its core, means you're going to divide the country into two parts us, the majority who are the good guys, and them, the minority that are the bad guys, the elites that are the bad guys. Yep. And so if you're a left-wing populist, you say, everyone who's in the 
you know, the, from the 99th percentile on down in income, we're all on one side. Yeah. And we have to unite against the bad guys who are the 1% uh, group with the income. Whereas if you're a conservative uh, populist, you're going to say everyone, regardless of income, who is sort of centrist in your value system, we're all the good guys. The elites or these cultural elites, the high education people, they're the bad guys. And we have to unite against that. I'm going to editorialize here for a moment. I don't like populists left or right wing because I don't like dividing the country into good guys and bad guys. And I don't want, and you know, I don't think we all need to unite against some awful other group of people. Amen. Uh, as, as a basic value, I don't like that. Yeah, I don't want to go there. Uh, that said, people who are sort of the cultural elites, they find this very frustrating because in their mind, it's just intuitively obvious that it's income that matters and that the rich are the different people. And, and they don't feel like elites. A lot of times they don't make that much money. You know, people right. who are social activists, they could be earning you know, $40,000 a year. And to have somebody like Donald Trump say, you're an elite. And they're like, I don't know, $40,000 a year? What do you mean I'm an elite? Doesn't, right. doesn't Get make... out of here. But they are elites in this cultural sense, in yeah. this educational sense. And that does matter to other people. Yeah. Well, I'm a news junkie. And that, that last five minutes, three minutes there by your description, that was the most insightful uh, perspective on what's happening in this country. Thank you for that. that. That was fascinating to me as it fits into psychology of love and economic and status. So thank you for that. You know, the book is The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Aaron, what is the best way to follow you and all the cool projects you're working on, the research? You mentioned a website earlier. So how should we stay in touch with you? I've got a blog called Peace, Love, and Happiness and Marketing, which is through Psychology Today. And so if you want to subscribe, uh, the best thing to do is actually to go on my website, thethingswelove.com, and you'll find a, a, a way there to subscribe to the blog. But that's a great way to keep up uh, on my work and also just things I find interesting. So if you found this interview interesting, you may find other stuff that I, I share with you, you know, also to be interesting. I'm, I'm on it. I uh, expect I'm going there uh, straight away. I love this. Your perspective is fascinating. Uh, what is the, by reading this book, you mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. What is the one thing you would hope a reader would think or do differently as a result of reading this book and really getting involved with it? One of the most important consistent things with the things people love that we haven't talked that much about here is that they connect us to other people. The reason we love objects, most of the time, as I said, is that our brain is set up to love people. And the reason we love objects or brands is that our brain connects them to another person. Hmm. And then we love them as a connection to that person. So what I would urge us to do, urge people to do, is just give it some thought. When you love an object or an activity, actually sit down for just to take 30 seconds and think, who are the people that this connects me to? Realize that a lot of your passion around that is really about the way it supports those interpersonal relationships. And think about ways that you might 
use it better in that regard, that you might use the activities you love or the objects you love to really build and strengthen your relationships with other people. But at the end of the day, it's our relationships with people that really matter. And let's use the stuff in our lives to support those relationships. That's a great call to action. I want to hear from you. What advice or challenge would you give? The I dare you challenge to everyone listening. What do you got? I dare you to fall in love with something new. And we talked earlier about the sort of love at first sight versus the love that builds up over time. As you get older, you don't have the love at first sight quite so often. A lot of people mistakenly think that if they don't love something the first time they try it, that it's not for them. And I find that that's not true. There's a lot of things that you love that you just don't remember the long process of learning to love that thing. So I have made a habit of this in my life. Uh, I did not used to like cars. I learned to love cars. Uh, I, there's all kinds of musical styles. I did not initially like country and Western music. I've learned to really enjoy that. Um, I also learned to enjoy jazz at the same time. Nice. So the way you learn to like something is pretty easy. It takes a lot of practice. So take whatever this thing is, expose yourself to it, and ask yourself each time, what am I enjoying or what could I enjoy or what's good about it? So just focus your mind on the good stuff and expose yourself over and over again. If there's something that you're interested in, uh, but doesn't click with you right away, try it 15 times. At the end of 15, if you still don't like it, heaven's sakes, move on. I have now, I'm telling you, I'm proclaiming it to the world. Um, I am now a Taylor Swift fan. I have fought it for years, but now she has a brand new album out, Aaron. And I'm, I'm listening to it all the time. My kids have been trying to get me to listen to Taylor Swift. And at first it's like, oh no, I can't, I, I don't like it. And but something has shifted for me. This might've been the 15th time now I've listened to, <laughs> to Taylor Swift, but I'm a fan. So th thanks for your advice. So Aaron, thanks for that challenge. Appreciate it very much. And having you on the podcast has been so great. Getting your insights from your extensive research in this topic was just fascinating. So thanks again for being here. Darren, I'm gonna give, I don't normally do this. I'm gonna give you a free plug here. Uh, you were so prepared and your questions were excellent. I've done 35 podcasts uh, in the past month and a half. This is definitely a, a really nice show. And I'm going to tune in in the future uh, because of the thought you put into what you do. And I think it's going to pay off. I think it does pay off for your listeners. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And now that opens the door. You were on Oprah Winfrey's show. What was the bigger thrill, being on this podcast or on Oprah? Oh, I love all my children. I don't have a favorite child. <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, Aaron, thanks again for being here and look forward to staying connected with you, okay? Thank you, Darren. All right, that was Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Wow, what a conversation. You ever talk to somebody and you realize you're about 80 IQ points lower? <laughs> Well, that just happened to me. I love talking to him and his perspective. You can tell why he's one of the top 2% of all researchers in the world, can't you? Unbelievable. And his I Dare You Challenge, I think, is really practical. <laughs> Try something 15 times. If you don't like it by then or don't, if you're not falling in love with it by then, walk away. <laughs> but for those other things in your life, give it a try. Fall in love. 
but let's let's give that a try. So now everyone, make sure you are following the I Dare You podcast at I Dare You Pod, also at Darren Johnson One. Now that you listen to the episode, make sure you share this with others. And also invite you to subscribe to this show so you do not miss an episode. Now everyone, get ready for episode 47 next week. Uh, we're nearing the end of the year. I can't believe it. We're, we're going to spend next week talking about your new year and what's next for you and how to make it your best year yet. I can't wait for you to hear it. I'll see you next week on the I Dare You podcast.